so I want to I want to tackle this passage in um, three ways. Firstly, I just want to I'm going to run through the passage and just make some comments on what we read. Uh, then we're going to look at the the kind of the big picture. What does the passage tell us about the identity of Jesus? And then we're going to think about well, what's the application? What does it mean for uh, for us, how do we apply it to us? And uh, if you were here last week or you've listened to the sermon from last week, you know this is the second of four episodes that the gospel writer, Mark to begin with, and then Luke Matthew copying him, the gospel writers put together. And there are four, um, I sometimes call them four storms, because they are, there are four situations, the first of which is a real storm on the lake. But there are four situations which um, involve uh, things which are beyond anybody's ability to control. That's the, that's the point of them. There are four things where people are at a loss to know what to do, and there is actually nothing, humanly speaking, that can be done to make a difference in these four situations until Jesus comes along. Uh, Jesus enters the four situations and completely transforms, transforms them. And the Gospel writers put them together... Because the gospel writers want us to begin to understand who this Jesus is. Remember, uh, when, the, when Jesus calms the storm on the lake, the question that the, um, the disciples have is, who is this? They're trying to work out who, who is this Jesus who can do these amazing things. And by the time we get to chapter 9 and verse 20, Peter, by the grace and the revelation of God, has worked out that Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the anointed one. He is the saviour of the world. But as I said last time, for all of us, it's discovering who Jesus is, is a journey. And we gradually, by God's grace, work it out. And that's what the disciples are doing. And so in this passage this morning, again, it's another revelation of the identity of Jesus. Not just that he performs great miracles, but that in the miracles we begin to understand who he is. So, first of all, let's just go through the passage and I'll make a few comments about uh, what we're reading and what the significant points are. So, first of all, Jesus um, travels across the lake. So, uh, so where he's been uh, before is uh, sort of Jewish territory. But he deliberately travels across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, which is almost certainly Gentile territory. So he's left Israel and he's quite deliberately gone to a place where Gentiles live, where non-Jews live. This is sort of just north of a region called the Decapolis. It's ten, a city built on ten hills and it's Gentile territory. So this is not a place that Jews would normally want to go. And everything about this episode is non-Jewish and everything about it, it tells us stuff that Jews would not want to touch with a barge pole. Uh, there are demons involved, there are tombs involved, there are pigs involved. If you're a Jew, this is not the kind of place where you want to go to. You don't want to go anywhere near a tomb, because if you go anywhere near a tomb, it makes you ritually unclean, and you can't worship. You, your relationship with God is harmed. If you're a Jew, you are forbidden from keeping pigs, let alone eating them. So everything about this territory and this environment is non-Jewish, but Jesus deliberately walks straight into it. That's the first thing to note. He comes across a demon-possessed man who is out of control. He hasn't worn clothes or lived in a house. He lives in the tombs. Uh, many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he'd broken his chains, been driven by the demon into solitary places. This is a man who is utterly um, out of control, and there's nothing that anybody can do. The best that they can do is try to restrain him, 
But that doesn't work. Uh, presumably when he's kind of calmer, they manage to restrain him and chain him up. But then the demon in him is so powerful, he breaks the chains. He's utterly out of control until Jesus arrives. Uh, next thing to note, the, um, the poor herd of pigs. There are 2,000 pigs who come to a watery end. And um, sometimes there's kind of a thought, well, you know, what's happening with the, with the pigs? What's at stake here is the eternal destiny of a human being made in the image of God. That's the, uh, and although, you know, this is about, with a, you know, with a, we get upset about the pigs, but actually it's the eternal destiny of a man made in the image of God. And in balance, actually, the rescue of this, the eternal destiny of this man, uh, sadly, trumps the pigs. Uh, when people see what's happened, they run off and report in the town and countryside. They want to tell people what has happened. What happens to the, to the man? His situation is utterly transformed. Uh, Luke goes to great um, lengths to say, this is a man out of control. There's nothing that anybody can do. But when Jesus gets involved, where do we find him? Sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. So his situation is utterly transformed. Remember at the beginning of the service, I was talking about Paul's experience of having his life transformed by Jesus. By discovering that actually the, 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 the evil that Paul wrestled with in his life, the fact that he so often found himself wanting to do the right thing, but ending up doing the wrong thing in Jesus, he finds the solution. He finds the answer. He finds transformation. That's what happens to this guy. He's utterly out of control. And yet here we are finding him sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And we'll unpack that a bit further when we come to the, to the application those who have experienced what Jesus has done are not just afraid, but they are overcome with fear. They're overcome with fear because of what Jesus does. There's, there's something that they have seen that they can't explain. And it's not just that they've lost their pigs. There's something more than that going on. When the presence of Jesus, when the presence of God impacts your life, it is, it is utterly disturbing. We shouldn't expect to encounter the living God and not be disturbed. I don't know if you, um, if any of you have read this book. Um, it's by an author called Paul Gallico. Anyone know Paul Gallico? No blank faces. Anyone heard of the Poseidon Adventure? Yes, the Poseidon. Well, Paul Gallico wrote the book, The Poseidon Adventure, uh, and, and then they made it into a film, and he, everyone became he sort of became famous. But he wrote a book before that called um, The Man Who Is Magic, which is one of my favourite childhood books. And in The Man Who Is Magic, there is a city entirely populated by magicians. But they are, they're the kind of magicians that you see on Britain's Got Talent. They're the sort of, you know, sleight of hand, illusion, misdirection. They're not, they don't really do magic. They just do the sleight of hand stuff. And this city is entirely populated by those kind of magicians. And then one day, this guy wanders over the mountains into the city and starts doing magic. But it's real magic. And so these other magicians, their noses get put out of joint because suddenly this stranger who's turned up in town is suddenly drawing huge crowds and everybody wants to go and watch him and not watch them because he's like doing the real thing. And they can't understand it and they can't explain it and they get really cheesed off. And in the end, they put him on trial because they want to get rid of him because 
They know that what they're doing is just sleight of hand and misdirection and illusion. And they know that what this guy is doing is, is kind of, it's the real thing. So they put him on trial. And at his trial, they get him to perform one of his things. And he, he does this thing where he gets, a, he gets a glass bowl and he cracks an egg into it. And he has the two halves of the egg on the table. And then he whisks the egg with a fork. And then he unwhisks it. So it's back to the, you know, to the yolk and the white. And then he, he tips... He tips this perfect egg back into the shell. He puts the two halves of the shell together and it becomes a perfect egg and he puts it on the table. And literally, he's, he has really, he's really done it. And they get so upset, they can't understand it, they kick him out of town. Because they're always, they're kind of living with the illusion. And when the real thing shows up, they can't bear it and they kick him out. And sometimes that's what happens when the living God comes into a situation and into our lives. Actually, the reality of it is so disturbing that people kick him out. And that seems to be what's going on here. They know that something has happened and they can't explain it. They can't explain what has happened to man. And even though they can see the transformation that for him is so wonderful, they're like, this is too much. And often that's what happens with Jesus. It's it's too much. People can't cope and they turn away. What a tragedy, but that's, that seems to be the reality. They are overcome with fear because they can't explain what has just happened. The man wants to stay with Jesus, as you would do. But what does Jesus say to the man? He says, he sends him away, return home and tell how much God has done for you. If your life has been impacted by Jesus and you know the difference that Jesus makes, are Our first calling as followers of Jesus is to tell other people what Jesus has done. And sometimes we feel really, uh, you know, we get all sort of tongue-tied and we're, well, I don't know what I would say. And what he says, what Jesus says to the man is just tell people what God has done. All of us, hopefully, have a story of what the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And that's all that we have to tell. We don't have to come up with a systematic theology in 18 volumes We just have to say, well, Jesus did this. Jesus did this. I was in this situation and Jesus did this. I prayed about this and this is what happened. That's that's kind of our calling. And the significant thing is it's Jesus who's made the difference. It's Jesus who's spoken a word and got rid of the demon. It's Jesus who's done it. But Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. He doesn't say how much I've done for you, how much God has done. If you remember last week, uh, one of the things about the the calming of the storm on the lake is that thing from Psalm 107, where we see almost exactly the same thing. And in the Psalm, it's Yahweh who's done it. And in the Gospel, it's Luke who's done it. Duh, Jesus must be Yahweh. That's the point. And here again, Jesus does something. And then he says, go home and tell people how much God has done for you. Oh, Jesus is making a claim to be God. This is all about his identity. So those are just a kind of few highlights in the passage. Now, now big picture, because in this episode, the, the whole of salvation history is revealed in this one story. God's plan from the beginning to the end of time is revealed in this little story. And uh, we need to see that because it's all about, well, who is this Jesus? Well, he's God. 
And he's working out salvation history. So that's the point of Jesus deliberately sailing across the lake from Israel, Israelite territory into Gentile territory. Because the good news of Jesus is not just for Jews. The good news of Jesus is for the whole world. And at the time of Jesus, the Jews have kind of lost sight of that. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for a savior, but they're looking for someone to save them. They're not looking for a saviour for the whole world, but that's what God's intention is. Way back in the Old Testament, what does God do? He chooses one man, Abraham. And from that one man, he creates a family. And from that one family, he creates a nation. And in that one nation, he creates a bridgehead for good news to spread into the world. It's a bit like the um, the D-Day landings when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and established a bridgehead. And they didn't establish a bridgehead just so that little corner of Normandy could enjoy freedom and liberation from oppression. They established that little bridgehead on Normandy so that freedom from oppression could spread through Europe all the way to Berlin. That was the point of establishing a bridgehead. That's what God was doing with the Jewish nation. He was establishing a bridgehead in the world. And through the Old Testament, God keeps reminds them that that's their calling. The point of the Jewish nation is not just to have good news for themselves, but that through them, good news might spread to the world. So in Isaiah chapter 42, uh, God speaks to the nation of Israel and he says this. He says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. And a light for the Gentiles. A light for the Gentiles. Jesus is good news for all of us at the beginning of Luke's gospel in the birth narratives when uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to offer the sacrifice that was appropriate. Uh, Simeon comes up to them and he says this to them, that this Jesus, this baby will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is a light for the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13 in the early church, Paul is preaching and as he preaches, he reminds people that God has said, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation where? To the ends of the earth. Salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why we must never be ashamed of Jesus. We must never be ashamed of the gospel. and We must never be ashamed of telling other people about Jesus because Jesus is good news for everybody. Not just for Jews, not just for Christians, but for everybody, for atheists, for Muslims, for Hindus. Jesus is the best news. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth and the life. There's no other way of getting to God. That's what Jesus said. I don't say it because it was my idea. I don't say it because it was anybody else's idea other than Jesus, the son of the living God. That's who says it. He is he is the only way. And that's why Jesus deliberately goes across the lake into the region of Gentiles and performs this incredible transformation. Because in a nutshell, in microcosm, that's God's plan for the salvation of the world. That's God's business, is to send a message of good news that will utterly transform the world and utterly transform everyone who comes to Jesus. So this little episode doesn't just tell us about the identity of Jesus, that Jesus does what God does. Therefore, 
Jesus' identity is divine, it also tells us about God's plan for salvation history, that God establishes a bridgehead, and from that bridgehead, he spreads good news into the whole world. Jesus is not just for a few people. Jesus is for everybody. He's for you, and he's for me, and he's for everyone that God has created. And that's what Jesus is doing. This is He is reminding the nation of Israel, that this is their calling. This is their calling. This is what he has called them to do. And it's something that they have forgotten and that they need to rediscover. And as you may know, it's one of the great, it's one of the great discussions in the early church, one of the great debates of, well, was, was Jesus just for us as Jews or is Jesus for everybody? And it's one of the things they have to rediscover. But here it is. Jesus deliberately going into Gentile territory to you know, replace that flag in the sand and say God's good news is for everybody. We all need him. And why do we all need him? Because of the transformative effect. So that's kind of big picture. Uh, let's go kind of smaller picture. What's, you know, what's the application? What difference does Jesus make to our lives? If we accept Jesus... What happens? What's the difference that he makes? And here we see it, just in this little phrase from verse 35. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. So remember, to begin with, this guy is, is utterly out of control. He doesn't know Jesus, he's not met Jesus, and his life is being ruined by these demonic spirits. He has this encounter with Jesus, and now we find him utterly transformed, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. This is what happens when we come to Jesus. Now, fortunately, not all of us, well, not many of us, are uh, nakedly running around the cemeteries of Burgess Hill and Bolney. Uh, we're not kind of, you know, our, our kind of demon possession is not as extreme as this poor guy. But the reality is that before we know Christ, our, you know, we live, as Paul would describe it, we live under a dominion of darkness. And our lives, whether we like it or not, are under the influence of, uh, of Satan. That's why Paul has this great wrestle with the fact that he knows the right thing to do. But he constantly finds himself doing the wrong thing. And if you're a human being, that is your experience. That so often you see a situation and you know the right thing to do, but you end up doing the wrong thing. And then you think, why did I do that? I knew the right thing to do, and yet I have gone and done the wrong thing. And sometimes, even as you're doing it, you are thinking, this may just be me, but I'm hoping it's not. Even as you're doing it, you're kind of thinking, why on earth am I doing this? I know this is not the right thing to do, and yet I'm still doing it. There are words coming out of my mouth, and as they're coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, what are you saying? What you, is it just me? Please say it's not just me. You're just thinking, what am I doing? What is that all about? No, thank you, Peter. What is, that is about the fact that, you know, this, this, it's not just good in the world. There is evil in the world that affects us. Paul writes in... Um, to the Colossians, uh, as he's describing the difference that Jesus makes. And he says, uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, that Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness 
and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's the difference Jesus makes. He rescues us from the dominion of darkness. And in the dominion of darkness, if that's the place where you live, all this, you just do rubbish things all the time. And you just go down that path of doing things that are wrong. And you know that they're wrong. And the more that you do them, the more they become normal. But even as followers of Christ, we're still in this battle. As Paul said, it's still this wrestle between you know, good and evil and choosing to do the, do the right thing. That's what we thought. When we come to Jesus, there is transformation. just want to unpack briefly the three changes that happen to the man once he encounters Jesus. Because these are the three things that should happen to us as we come to Jesus Christ. Number one. They find him sitting at Jesus's feet. Now, if you sit at someone's feet, it is because you are their disciple. and It's because you want to learn from them. Uh, Remember that Jesus has said uh, just a few verses before that his family consists of those who hear the word of God and do something about it. He said a few verses before that, that we should be careful to listen to what Jesus says. Being a follower of Jesus consists of sitting at his feet, listening to what he says and then acting on it. Uh, In a couple of chapters time, we'll come to the the, um, famous story of Mary and Martha. Remember the story of Mary and Martha. Um, Mary is being very, very busy because Jesus is coming to the house and she's in the kitchen and she's busy making food and cleaning. And Mary, we read, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Uh, And when we get to that passage uh, in a few weeks' time, uh, we'll realise how controversial and how radical it is that Mary is taking the place of a disciple. She's acting like a man, sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. And Jesus says to her, says to Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. What's the one thing that's needed? To listen to Jesus. To sit at his feet. When we, you know, when I first became a Christian at the age of 17, the first thing that I started to do was sit at Jesus' feet. In other words, I started to read the Bible and listen to what God was saying to me through the Bible, because that's what you need to do. So the man is sitting at Jesus' feet. Second thing, he's dressed. He's been running around the tombs naked, shouting his head off. And now he's dressed, he's clothed. And again, when we, uh, you know, a similar thing happens when we come to Jesus and accept him as our saviour. Again, uh, Paul writing to the church in uh, Colossae, he basically says to them, you need to change your clothes. Uh, You need to get dressed. You need to put the right clothes on. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 3 of Colossians, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that wonderful description of us, we're chosen, holy and dearly loved. I always always find it so sad when people have this, uh, have ideas about God that are inaccurate and that are not true, because God dearly loves us. Dearly loves us. He says, because you're chosen holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. What do we clothe ourselves with as Christians? Well, hopefully we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. 
Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Those are the clothes that God gives us to wear when we come to him. Clothes that without him we don't wear very well. Uh, We run around in rags, naked, but in Jesus we find the clothes that we can wear. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Those are the things that should characterize our lives as we follow Jesus. And they replace the stuff that Paul tells us to take off. But a few verses earlier in verse 5, he says, put to death. In other words, take off whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. All of that stuff is what we need to leave in the graveyard when our old nature is buried in Christ. That wonderful illustration from baptism when we're plunged under the water. All of that stuff dies with our earthly nature and in its place we put on the clothes of God. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So... We sit at Jesus' feet, we listen and we learn, we put on those clothes and we find this man in his right mind. His thinking has changed because of his encounter with Jesus. And so too for us, our thinking changes when we come to Jesus. We start to think differently. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul says, Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. In Jesus we start to think differently. Because he transforms our mind. Transforms the way that we think. And then we can test and approve what God's will is. We discover what God actually wants for us and for our lives. Uh, Paul again in 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, I think I read this verse last week as well. But Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. So when we're having those thoughts and we're, you know, we're kind of going down that road of, you know, we know we're going to end up doing something that we know that we shouldn't do. In Christ, we have the ability and the power to take those thoughts captive. To have our minds renewed. So this man, his life is utterly transformed from one of of chaos to one of order. He's running around, naked in the tombs, possessed by demons. And then Jesus speaks into his life and he is delivered. And we find him sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And that's the good news of Jesus. That when we come to Jesus, we are delivered from a dominion of darkness to freedom in the light of Christ. And as we do that, we learn from him. The way we behave is transformed because of his grace and the way that we think is transformed because of his grace. That to me sounds like good news. And that's the good news as Christians that we are called to share, which is why Jesus says to the man, no, don't follow me in that way. Don't literally physically hang out with me. Go home and tell how much God has done for you. So this morning we 
you know, we rejoice and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. That's why we worship, because of what Jesus has done for us. But now, let's go home and tell people what God has done for us. Let's tell our families, let's tell our neighbours, let's tell our work colleagues, let's tell those who live amongst us in the community what Jesus has done for us. So let's take a moment to, uh, to pray. Uh, let's take a moment to, um, to think again about what Jesus has done for us. Let's take a moment to think about those things that Jesus did for the man. To think those are the things that Jesus does for us, transforms our lives, teaches us. Changes our behaviour, changes our thinking. Jesus, thank you for the freedom that you have brought to us.